I'm guessing that we'd all agree that as Christians we're supposed to be followers of God. We're supposed to grow more like him in our thoughts and in our actions. And there's an old hymn which, depending on how old you are, whether you'll recognise or not, um, that says, breathe on me, breath of God, fill me with life anew, that I may love what thou dost love and do what thou wouldst do. And I think it's our constant challenge as Christians to love what God loves and do what God does. Would you agree with that? And that is especially important when it comes to, to God's heart because I believe God has a heart for the poor and that's a challenge that, that we um, can follow. So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to have a quick um, journey through the Bible from the Old Testament through to the New, looking at a few verses about God's heart for the poor. There's so many verses we could have looked at. We could have spent all half an hour just looking at Bible verses. We're not going to do that, but we'll look at some. Then we're going to have a brief look at the parable of Good Samaritan and some reasons why we don't always follow God's heart for the poor. Then a few suggestions of what it means to follow God's heart for the poor and then hopefully time for questions. I'm not sure. I'm really the expert that Chris was making out. So, But we'll, we'll have a go. We'll try and answer any questions and Chris can join in the, the answers as well um, if you'd like to. Just a little bit about my background, first of all. My background, um, most of my working life I spent leading churches. Um, most of that time was either in Pentecostal churches. We, we led church in Manchester and then Essex and then um, in, in Wallasey on, on the Wirral. And during that time, uh, I always wanted to try and be involved in community. And that looked like different things, different places. In Oasis, which was the most um, recent... We took over a uh, empty Methodist church building, and we did a big childcare um, that Ruth um, ran. We had a day nursery, and that's a school club, a preschool, a big toddler group. Um, all sorts of things were happening. We did um, lots of stuff for older people as well. A big schools program. Uh, all sorts of different things were happening. At one point, we were. Uh, regularly had around 250 families who weren't Christians coming into the building every single week through some of one of those sort of aspects. After that, I spent a few years working um, with YMCA in Elfman Port, managing a family support project. Then we moved to Kirby with a view to starting a church plant that didn't work out. And by that point, I was working for Liverpool Charity Voluntary Services as a development officer to actually help other community groups to try and... Um, be active in the community. And during that time when my contract was coming to an end, I was kind of thinking and praying, what can I do, partly to raise income myself, I'll be honest, but also to try and make a difference in the community. And someone had put a South Liverpool Food Bank leaflet on my desk. Still don't know who it was or why they did. It was no relevance to me particularly. It wasn't my area. I'd never even heard of a food bank at that point. Uh, and I picked it up and I thought, well, I wonder if this has a need in, in Nosley. Started to speak to people. Everybody thought it probably did. And so we started, as Chris said, five years ago um, this month, the, the Nosley Food Bank. Always my intention would do more than that. We wanted to not just feed people, but stop people needing food in the first place. So we've done a number of things, um, including debt advice that Debbie's involved in, and helping people into work and, and various other things as well. Okay, that's a bit about me. 
What about God's heart for the poor? Quick, sort of skim through the Bible. I wonder what you think of when you think of the Old Testament law. Do you think it was something that's irrelevant? Something that's outdated? Something that's got no significance for today? After all, didn't Jesus come to fulfil the law? What's it, what's it got to do with us? Well, actually, there's so much in the first few, chapter, first few books of the Bible about God's heart for the poor. And just a few things there. We're not going to read those verses. But wages should be paid on time. That was a clear instruction there in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Loans to fellow Israelites should be made without interest, would have great significance in terms of, uh, of their quality of life. And how about this one? Farmers were to leave the edge of their fields when they harvest, unharvested, so the poor could go around and glean from them. And one that would have been so, such an impact, the debts were to be written off every seven years. And in those, those, those chapters, those books, it's a fantastic mixture uh, and all sorts of things, but it presents almost a welfare state centuries before the modern welfare state was even thought of. Workers' rights, centuries before the trade union movement came into being. There's so much there in the Old Testament, in, in the book of law, Others, other verses were that, we, that we could look at, all describing how God intended the nation of Israel, to act towards themselves. Some of these things didn't necessarily work out in practice, but that was God's heart, God's intention. What about the Old Testament prophets? Here was men and, and women who were speaking on behalf of God, who were communicating God's heart, key messages to the nation of Israel, what God's, God's heart for his people, how he wanted them to act. Again, just a few verses, there's so many we could look at. Amos chapter 2. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. A damning description of what life was like eight centuries before Jesus was, was, came into this world. They sell the innocent for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. How about Micah chapter 6? A reoccurring theme throughout the Old Testament prophets. Is God interested in just the outward worship, or does he want something more? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand of rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What about this outward show of my worship? Is this what God really wants? Micah goes on, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Not just about the outward worship, not just about sacrifices. It's about living a life, acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with your God. Isaiah chapter 58, verse 6 and 7. 
The context of Isaiah 58 is that the children of Israel were crying out to God. They're in a bad state of the country. They're saying, well, why, God, aren't you answering our prayers? Why aren't you responding to our, our worship? Why aren't you answering our fasting? What's going on, God? Why are you turned your back upon us? Why are you ignoring us? And Isaiah prophesies on behalf of God, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Again, not so much about the outward show uh, in terms of our fasting, our worship before God, but actually a practical way we live our life. These verses were really key for me in starting the Big Help Project. And these verses, particularly from the message, just spoke so powerfully. And I remember a number of churches back five years ago just talking about these verses. This is the kind of fast I am after. To break the change of injustice, get rid of exploitation in the workplace, free the oppressed, cancel debts. What I'm interested in seeing you do is sharing your food with the hungry, inviting the homeless poor into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering ill-clad, being available to your own families. Do this, the lights will turn on. Your lives will turn around at once. Your righteousness will pave your way. The God of glory will secure your passage. Then when you pray, God will answer. You'll call out and, and help for help. And I'll say, here I am. There's so many other verses from the Old Testament that we could look at, but that was just a few of them. But what about the early church? What about the book of Acts? Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to 34, there's a, a wonderful glimpse of life in the early church. Such a challenge. Believers were one in heart and mind. You see, this wasn't some sort of imposed communism. This wasn't some imposed situation where everybody had to do what, was, what somebody else said. This, these verses flowed out of relationship, flowed out of community, flowed out of that relationship of one in heart and mind. Mind-boggling verses. Nobody considered anything they had their own. They shared everything. Can you imagine living in an environment like that? I'm not sure I can particularly. Nobody considers what they had was their own. They shared everything. And it says God's grace was powerfully at work in them. I think this is really interesting because if you were to, someone asked you, how do you know if God's grace is a powerfully at work in, the, in this church? Then I wonder how we would answer. It's because of our worship. It's because of the miracles. Here, God's work was powerful. God's grace was powerful at work in them because there was no needy people. There was no needy people. There was such a, a relationship between them, such a practical caring that there was no needy people. I wonder if there's ever been a church anywhere throughout this world in history since then that could honestly say that. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I guess that's not surprising. In a context where there's no needy people, that would have been such a, a demonstration in itself. Imagine 
that you're one of the early church leaders. Imagine you're maybe James or Peter or John. You've been with Jesus three and a half years. You've seen all the miracles. You've heard the teaching. You're one of the special apostles. And now you hear stories about this Saul, this persecutor becoming a Christian, and how he's going to the Gentiles, those who are not Jews. You decide you need to meet with this Paul, as he's now become known, and you need to find out what it's all about. Hear his story. When you hear his story, you're very impressed. You recognise God's grace at work in his life. So you decide to share with Paul one thing of the utmost importance. One thing that you want him to always remember. I wonder what that one thing would have been. You need to remember the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to remember the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You need to remember the importance of going out of your way to share with your neighbours all sorts of really wonderful things. You need to remember about God's grace, so vital. Galatians chapter 2, verse 9 to 10, describes that situation. James, Peter and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me, this is Paul writing, and Barnabas, the right hand of fellowship, when they recognised the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and lay to the circumcised, the Jews. All they asked, one thing they asked, was that we should continue to remember the poor. The very thing I'd been eager to do all along. I just find it so interesting. Of all the things that Peter, James and John could have told them to do, this one thing was they felt was most important, which was the very thing that Paul says he was eager to do all the time. Okay, what about Jesus? Luke chapter 4, verse 16 to 19, we read what's sometimes called his manifesto. The reason why he came, quotes from Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, Proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. In a nutshell, that's exactly what Jesus spent his ministry doing. The early church, what they carried on doing, and I suggest what describes God's heart for us in terms of what we should be doing. In Luke chapter 7, there's a story there, or situation there, where John the Baptist has been put in prison, he thinks he's about to die. So he sends his followers to Jesus to find out, is Jesus really the one? Is he really the Messiah? Is he really the promised one? And Jesus says, well, go back and tell your master. Tell him what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. It's interesting that Luke Gospel particularly highlights and emphasises the emphasis upon Jesus' ministry with the poor. So many references, so many stories, so many powerful, so many miracles where Luke highlights this particular aspect. So there's so much throughout the whole of Scripture. We could look at other verses, but, but time doesn't really allow. Where we see God's heart for the poor where we see that God has an intent, a deliberate feeling for the poor. He wants, first of all, the children of Israel and then his church to actually act 
in the light of that passion. So, the question therefore is, why don't we always follow God's heart for the poor? I want us to have a look at the story of the Good Samaritan. I'm guessing it's probably fairly familiar, but we'll um, read it together. So I think there's perhaps some, uh, some, some hints there for some of the reasons why we don't necessarily always follow God's heart. Luke chapter 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbour as yourself. You answer correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbour? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came, w- came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expenditure I have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Before I suggest five reasons why perhaps we don't always get involved, I thought it would be interesting to get you thinking a bit. Why do you think the priest and the Levite didn't get involved? Why did they pass by on the other side? I think there's all sorts of reasons. I'm not sure there's necessarily a, a right or a wrong. Lots of different reasons. But why, why do you think that they pass by? Let's, do you want to shout out a few answers? Fear. Fear? Okay. Fear of? Fear that they would be attacked. Fear they would be attacked. Yep. Very good. Yep. Prejudice. Prejudice. Okay. Not knowing what to do. Too busy. Too busy. Too important. They're far too important to get involved and get their hands dirty. Thinking about their own needs. Thinking about their own needs, yeah. Sorry? Anybody else saw them yet? Okay, yeah. Oblivious. So many good reasons. Um, I wouldn't argue and disagree with any of those. I've just got five suggestions here. And some of these overlap and some of them are different. None of my business. I think it's so easy, isn't it? You know, I don't know that person. I have no idea who they are. It's not my responsibility. It's not my job. It's not my, not my situation. Someone else can help them. I, you know, it's just none of my business. And maybe in the Western world, we're perhaps particularly good at this. You know, we live our departmentalised sort of lives. Uh, and that over there, you know, it's... That's somebody else's problem. 
Too much effort. I'm just too busy. I've got a lot on. Don't you know my, my schedule? Don't you know my, my, I, I'm an important person. I've got priorities. I'm just too tired. I'm just worn out. But it's going to take too much effort for me to, to do anything. Too big a cost in terms of money. You know, we've all got limited resources. We need to watch the pennies. We're on a tight budget. I've got the car to look after. I've got this to look after. I've got the family. You know, I can't afford to, to, to do that, to care for this person. It would cost me money. And then the other one, which I think is, is perhaps even more significant than costing us money, it would cost me time. I've got my family to look after. I've got a busy job. I've got all my church commitments. All sorts of things that we use, can use sometimes, almost as excuses to stop us getting involved, following God's heart and making a difference. And then this one, which, which Becky said, we just not sure what to do. You know, I wouldn't know where to start. Uh, and maybe they will say something and I won't know how to answer them. And maybe when I actually, if I did actually go over there and help this person, maybe there'd be other needs far beyond what I'm capable of, of, uh, of doing. And fear so easy, fear to lead to inactivity. I'm not sure exactly the reason. I think it may have been all sorts of things, those things and other things that you said as well. Why the priest and Levi missed God's heart for the poor. Maybe a combination of all of them, but, but they did. But contrast that to the Samaritan. Now, if anybody had a reason not to get involved, it was the Samaritan. All sorts of things. And we haven't got time to go into great detail, but there was all sorts of reasons why he should have been prejudiced against helping this person. And yet, these these verses describe how, at personal cost of his time and money, he actually put himself in potential danger to do exactly what was needed. Following God's heart in this situation. So how about us? If I'm being really honest, I think I've been guilty of all of these five things that I've mentioned. Sometimes just not getting involved. Again, I don't say this to be proud, but sometimes, if I'm honest, I just can't be bothered. It's, it's just, I'm just too busy or just haven't got the energy. So what does it mean to follow God's heart for the poor? I want to watch a very short video which you may have seen before I'm sure you'll be familiar with the, the story behind it it's just a very short video if we can watch that please Neil a man was walking along the beach in Mexico and very tired after his story he saw that there were tens of thousands of starfish left stranded on the beach dying in the and after the the man saw a boy was picking up the starfish one at a time. The boy then went back to get another one, picked it up, and threw it to the sea. The man went up to the boy, and he laughed, and he said, Look, can't you see you've tens of thousands of starfish out here? I don't really think what you're doing is going to make any difference. The young boy suddenly carried on, picked up another starfish, 
went down to the water's edge and stood into the sea. And then he turned to the man and he said, well, I bet it made a difference for that one. I bet it made a difference for that one. Isn't it so easy to be overawed? The task is too great. Resources are too few. Don't know where to start. And yet the reality, we can make a difference one life at a time. The feeding of the 5,000 is a brilliant story, which I'm guessing um, you are familiar with, so we're not going to actually read these verses. But in this story, there was an incredible, incredible need. Mark tells us there was more than 5,000 men there at that time. So if you kind of double up men and women and children, we're talking about a group of, what, 12,000 people possibly? And Jesus has this conversation with the disciples. Disciples say, it's getting late, send them away. Jesus said, well, actually, you give them something to eat. And they say, well, that would take more than half a year's wages. I don't know what the average wage is. I meant to look it up and get around to it. But if it used to be £24,000, it used to be the average wage in this country. So they're saying that it's going to take £12,000 just to feed these people, which I guess if it was sort of twelve, fifteen thousand, 15000 probably is not, not unrealistic. So Jesus said, well, what have you got? We don't know, they say. Well, he said, go and find out. They come back and say, five loaves and two fish. One little boy's packed lunch. That's all it is. You know, a bag of crisps, a couple of sandwiches, a yogurt, you know, a banana, whatever it is. That's what they're talking about. One little boy's packed lunch. And yet the incredible part of this story is that when that little was given to Jesus, everybody had enough. And they went home satisfied. What does God want from us? Like baby wants us to make a difference, starting where we're at, using the little we have. We can feel that is so small and significant. Yet given over to God, the power of the gospel says that he's able to take that, multiply it, and make a difference. And that really is the story of the Big Help Project five years ago. There was me working three days a week. And now we have, I think it's 20 staff possibly 21 staff, I'm not sure, um, something like that. I'd love to tell you how I had this clever plan five years ago, that we're going to do this and this and this, and be like this point in five years' time, but it wouldn't be true. All that we've done, really, I don't see this in a, all we've done in an easy sense, but what we've done, really, is respond to the need and the opportunity. And God's opened the doors. When we were about to start the food bank, somebody had a prophecy and said they saw in their mind the story of the ravens feeding Elijah. But the story, in their mind, they, they saw this story, and the, 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 the ravens were carrying tins of beans um, and bringing them to the food bank. And they felt God was saying that he would provide. Sometimes we wish it wasn't beans that they were providing, but anyway, that's beside the point. Um, but the idea was that God would always provide. And that's been our, our, our situation, that's been our story hasn't always been easy, but God has always provided as we respond to the need and the opportunity. So how can we make a difference? Three very, very obvious things. We can all pray, first of all, first and foremost. 
We talk about prayer, we, we do pray at prayer meetings, we pray by ourselves hopefully as well. We know about prayer, and yet do we really understand the significance and the impact of prayer? We could give financially. I'm not sure there's many charities that would turn down financial support. We could give of our time. You say, well, I haven't got a lot of time. Well, maybe just a small bit of time on a one-off basis or whatever it is. But whatever it is we can do, God wants us to make a difference one life at a time. And I believe if you follow your heart, follow your passion, there is a good likelihood that you are following God's heart because as Christians, our heart becomes God's heart. And he puts those desires, those ambitions into us, those passions into us. And I think there's also a good possibility that when there's a need and there's an opportunity that come together, then there can be a calling. That may not be 100% true, but I think that often is the case. There's lots more I could say, but time is, is sort of going. Um, just to mention two books that may be of interest. The Myth of the Undeserving Poor, written by a guy called Martin Charlesworth. He's a New Frontiers um, church leader involved with Jubilee Plus. Uh, it's a tremendous book, all sorts of things there about the myth of the undeserving poor. You see that so often in the papers, on, on TV and whatever, the idea of the undeserving poor. It's okay to help those who deserve it, but what about those who don't deserve it? And this challenges that sort of mentality. Actually, none of us deserve God's love, do we? Deserve God's grace in our lives. Aren't we all undeserving as far as he, as far as he is concerned? But this is a really, really good book. And then if you want to Another book that's um, written in a slightly different way, Tim Keller has written a book called Ministries of Mercy, which the call of the Jericho Road. It's all about the, um, the Good Samaritan, uh, and, and again, very, very challenging. Written in typical sort of Tim Keller style, not necessarily easy bedtime reading, but really thought-provoking, and a really, really good book. If you want to have a look at these books, then um, feel free.